Churches often put their time, resources, and efforts into doing many good things, all the while failing to ask what their primary focus should be. Thankfully, God hasn't left us in the dark when it comes to the church's mission. Welcome to the Radical with David Platt podcast, the latest sermons from teacher, author, and pastor David Platt delivered weekly. As always, you can find thousands of more free resources at Radical.net. In this new sermon from Matthew chapter 28, David Platt begins a three-part series unpacking the vision, mission, and goal of the local church. In today's sermon, we'll see why glorifying God has to be the starting point for all that we do. Here's David Platt with a new sermon titled, The Church's Mission, We Glorify God, from Matthew chapter 28. You have a Bible, and I hope you or somebody around you does that you can look on with the word of this God that we have been worshiping. I invite you to open with me to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28, verse 16. It says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. One commentator said, Matthew 28, 16 through 20, is the climax and major focal point, not only of Matthew's gospel, but of the entire New Testament. Went on to say, it's not an exaggeration to say that in its broadest sense, it is the focal point of all scripture, Old Testament as well as new. Now, whether or not it can be said this passage is the focal point of all the Bible, maybe up for debate, but at the very least, this is a reminder of how significant the words are, significant the words are that we just read. And I know for some people who may be following, you've followed Christ for decades in this gathering, you may be very familiar with this passage, may be dangerously over-familiar with it, to the point where you may have lost sight of its wonder. And if that's the case, I want to I help you recapture its wonder. And today, we're just going to camp out in one verse. So verse 18, Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So that is the verse this entire passage hinges on. So when you get to verse 19 and Jesus says, go therefore, he's saying all that he's telling them to go and do in verse 19 is 100% based on what he just said in verse 18. So why go and make disciples? Whatever that means, we'll talk about that next week. Like why give your life to this? Why give the church to that mission? Because Jesus says, I have all authority in heaven and on earth. So don't miss this. Everything the church is and everything the church does starts with a vision of the authority and supremacy and glory of God in Jesus. So when you think of vision, so what is vision? 
Vision is what your, what your eyes are fixed on, right? Vision is how you see the world, the lens through which you look at everything around you. I was talking with Todd Peters, our campus pastor out at Prince William, our resident Navy SEAL who's trained Navy SEALs all around the world. He was telling me how they do vision training with SEALs to help them see at night. And I thought, that's what we're doing in the church. Like, this, is, this is vision training in a world that's often really dark. How do you see? But here's what I get concerned about. When sometimes I hear churches and pastors even specifically talk about vision in the church and they'll say things like, our vision is to have this many thousand people or our vision is to have this many campuses or our vision is to do this or that. And when we say things like that, I just wonder if we're showing our tendency to lose sight of our pursuit of Christ and the pursuit of stuff in the church. Even in the pursuit of success in the church, how we may define that. Because here's the dangerous thing. Like, we could have 20,000 people but not have Christ. We could have crowds of people at 100 campuses but not have Christ. You can have all kinds of things that will get you on all kinds of lists of successful churches in our culture, but not have Christ. I don't want any of that. We don't, we don't want any of that. We want Jesus. Think Paul in Philippians chapter three. I want to know Christ. Philippians chapter one, for me to live is Christ. He's my life. My eyes are fixed on him. I want to know him. I want my life to look like him. I want my life to exalt him. So not even just to think that way individually, but as a church. So what is the vision of McLean Bible Church? Where are our eyes fixed? Our eyes are gazed upon God in all of his glory, revealed in Jesus, his son, the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. We worship him. We fix our eyes on him. We exalt him. We enjoy him. We want to walk with him. We want to know him. We want to love him. We want to exalt him all over Washington. We want to exalt him all over the world. That is what drives us as a church. He is what drives us as a church. Now, that that can seem really basic. Like, of course, God drives us to church. But don't miss this. Because this is so different. I fear than how so much of church culture is driven today. I don't know if you've ever heard the term consumer Christianity. But it's a label kind of given to a mentality in American church culture that says, if you want to be successful as a church, then make church as comfortable as possible for the consumer, i.e. the Christian. So build places and programs where people can conveniently come, give them a nice latte when they walk in the door, provide state-of-the-art entertainment for their children while you treat them to a smooth service that leaves them feeling good when they drive away in a timely fashion. So uh, variations of that vision engineered for the savvy Christian consumer have been multiplied across the landscape in our country, and they work. The crowds come, and the vision is realized. But what happens when the vision changes? And what happens when our gaze is not fixed on making sure crowds feel comfortable, but on making sure God receives glory? When suddenly our priorities are totally different. More than we want to appeal to people's self-centered preferences, 
We want to awe people with God-centered praise. More than we want men and women and children to be impressed by the services we can manufacture by ourselves, we want them to be amazed by the God they cannot fathom through the Spirit. And the last thing we want to do is raise up people who are casual in worship as we sit back and enjoy our lattes. No, we want to raise up people who are captivated, awed, mesmerized by the greatness of God in such a way that we will gladly lose not just our lattes, but our lives making his glory known in the world. Now, that's a different way to approach church. But someone might ask, what's so wrong with the lattes? So some of you are drinking one right now and you are subtly trying to hide it under your seat. So the, the lattes aren't the point. Don't miss the bigger picture. Someone might rightfully ask, but isn't it good to cater to people's preferences who do not know God yet? Like, don't we want to be sensitive to those who are seeking after God? And that's a great question. Without question, we want to see as many people as possible in our community, in our city, come to Christ. But then I think about what the Bible says. I read Romans 3, which makes really clear that there is no one who seeks God. This, the state of man's heart, apart from God's grace, he's running away from God. The Bible tells us that God is the one who's seeking. John 4, God is seeking worshipers. Luke 19, Sonny prayed it. Luke 19, Jesus came to seek the lost. So the Bible's clear. God, Jesus is seeking. He's been doing this for a long time. God has been seeking sinners for thousands of years. He is pretty good at it. Far better than any attractions or allurements we could ever assemble. So if we want people to come to Christ in the church, then what should we do? Shall we maybe make our community as God-centered as possible? Do everything we can to put the wonders of God's glory and God's majesty and God's holiness and God's justice and God's kindness and God's wrath and God's grace, all the glorious attributes of God we saw in the fall, put them all on display in the church every single week and everything we do. We want to show people the most biblical, holistic, comprehensive, clear, captivating vision of God that we possibly can. And when we put him on display, we can trust he will do the seeking. He is competent to do the seeking. I was thinking about a friend of mine this week who's just starting to plant a church in Utah. I remember the first time I met him, he was totally addicted to drugs. When I, when I met him, he, he could hardly even concentrate in our conversation. But his mom drug him to worship, no pun intended, uh, brought him to worship, baby, better way to say, his mom brought him to worship. So he walks into this gathering of God's people. We're singing about God's greatness. We're opening the Bible to hear God's voice. And I don't know if you remember, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, Paul talks about what will happen when an unbeliever comes into a worship gathering in the church. Paul says he will be convinced by all, by all that he's hearing, that he's a sinner. The secrets of his heart will be laid bare. So he will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. Isn't that, isn't that what we want to happen? Like every week we gather together, like people come in, maybe not followers of Christ, be like, well, that, that wasn't normal. Like God is among that people. 
Well, this guy had a 1 Corinthians 14 moment that day. Just captivated by the greatness of God in the church. He started crying out for the grace of God in his life. My friend was saved from his sins, not ultimately because he was seeking after God, but because he realized this God was seeking after him. This is what we want to show the world. Like a God whose grace and glory is greater than anything this world has to offer. We want to show people how God is totally different than everything this world has to offer. And just think about the triviality that surrounds us every single day. I look at my news feed this week with so much drivel on top of so much evil and wickedness. And we're inundated with this all the time. Our, our phones, online, on TV, in conversations. And in the middle of it all, I just think people are longing for something that's real, with a capital R, for something that's good and right, for something that matters, I mean, really matters. Don't we we want at least an hour or two in our week when we come aside and we see the one who's real and right and altogether good, where we gaze on the one whose greatness and glory puts all the pettiness into perspective. Don't we want to come aside at some point in the week not to see more of the same that we can get everywhere else in a world of wickedness and evil? Don't our souls long to see a glimpse of the God whose righteousness and justice will ultimately reign? In a world where people inevitably let us down, don't we long to see the God whose love will never let us go? In a world of turmoil and uncertainty everywhere, don't we long to see the God whose sovereign hand is always sure? In a world where we are so tempted, every one of us, to run every day after temporary pleasures, don't we need to see the eternal treasure that's found in a God whose pleasures will never, ever, ever fade? Church, we want God. We want to glorify God more than we even want to appease or entertain or center around ourselves. Just think about it. I was thinking about it as we were singing. Like, we live in a world where every day, Everything is shouting to us, self is God, self is God, self is God. It's what shout, just every day we're inundated. Everything around us permeated. People spending billions of dollars to focus our lives on ourselves. And if we're not careful, we'll create a whole church, church culture where we gather together every Sunday and say the same thing. Self is God, self is God, self is God. I heard on this radio this morning, supposedly Christian teaching that was promising prosperity in this world if you follow God. And I just thought, we, we've just made God a means to an end. God is the way to get more stuff for us. We've created a whole church culture that revolves around us, around worldly things we want, around the comforts we cling to, around the songs we prefer, around the sermons that suit our taste. When somewhere at some point, we all desperately need to hear, you're not God, you're not God, you're not God. It's not about you, it's about him. And, and follow this and to see satisfaction is not found in centering around ourselves. To realize that's what the world tells us is not true. We need to realize the deepest satisfaction of our soul is found in centering on God. That vision for God is what brings satisfaction to our soul. So God is not a means to an end. God is the end. And we want him. Our gaze is fixed on him. He's who we want. He's who we need. And you think about it. Why would we want anything else? I look at Matthew 28, 18. I hear all authority. And then I think about the picture that Matthew has painted of Jesus' authority all throughout this book leading up to this is the very last words. You got 27 chapters before this. 
We don't have time to look at all Matthew's written, but if you're taking notes, just a small glimpse here. Matthew has shown us at least six massive domains that Jesus possesses authority over. So one, Jesus has authority over nature. Jesus has authority to raise his hand and calm the seas, Matthew chapter 8. Jesus has authority to walk on top of water, Matthew chapter 14. Same chapter, Jesus has authority to cause five loaves of bread and two fish to multiply and feed over 5,000 people. Now, the rain that's falling today, that's falling at his authority, not by accident, by appointment. He's ordaining it to fall. His authority is making rain come down. Jesus has authority over nature. And Jesus has authority, number two, over nations. What we saw on Christmas Eve in Matthew chapter two, as wise men from the nations come and they bow down, which on a side note, so I was proud to hear that a 12-year-old girl who was in our Christmas Eve service promptly went home and moved the wise men from the nativity scene to another part of the house to show that they're still pretty far off. So uh, they're on their way. Uh, so we're after like biblically accurate nativity scenes in our homes. So uh, those wise men, they set the stage for a whole book focused on not just Jewish people, but all people from all nations coming to Jesus and confessing him as Lord. We'll talk about that more a couple weeks from now. Third, Jesus has authority over disease. He speaks and the blind can see, Matthew 9. Same chapter, he speaks and the lame walk. Lepers are healed, Matthew chapter 8. Jesus speaks, disease is gone. I, I was talking with one brother after the service, uh, uh, first service this morning, and he came up to me. We had we'd met probably a few months ago now and prayed for his wife um, who's been going through all kinds of physical struggles that have uh, caused all kinds of emotional struggles, all kinds of spiritual struggles. And he was just at the end of himself, she at the end of herself a few months ago. Just He's just saying, will you pray? Let's pray together. So we prayed and just praying for months. He comes to me uh, this morning. I haven't, I haven't seen him in a while. He comes to me and says, I just want you to know uh, my wife is healed. And so it was just like, this is, and we know, we, we know, we know uh, in God's sovereignty, he, he answers prayers in different ways. We know that doesn't always happen in that way, but we do need to always remember Jesus has authority over disease. He has authority over disease and sickness. Fourth, Jesus has authority over demons. Matthew chapter 8, Jesus speaks and demons run. Demons do whatever Jesus tells them to do because he has authority over them. Fifth, Jesus has authority over sin. Matthew chapter 4, Jesus has authority to resist sin and temptation in a way that we have all succumbed to sin and temptation. Jesus has authority not only to resist sin, but to forgive sin against God, which he tells the crowd around the paralytic in Matthew chapter 9 is a greater authority than even telling that man to get up off his mat and walk. Jesus has authority over sin, which then leads to number six. Jesus has authority over death. Jesus has authority to tell dead people to come to life, Matthew chapter 9. Jesus has authority to bring himself back to life, which is the whole picture leading up to this passage here in Matthew chapter 28. So I just happen to be, my Bible reading, I happen to be in Matthew 27 yesterday, Matthew 28 uh, today. And so I was reading Matthew 27 yesterday, verse 66. You look at the last verse where it says, uh, this has to be one of the most humorous verses in all the Bible. It says, so they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. I read that and done. Good luck with that. Like, you're dealing with the man who is God in the flesh and has authority over death. The first 15 verses of Matthew chapter 28 tell us how Jesus rose from the dead. That's authority 
Not one of us in this room has the authority to say, when we die, when we've been dead for three days, to decide, I think I'm going to come back to life right now. Oh, Jesus is Lord. He's Lord over nature. He's Lord over nations. He's Lord over demons, over disease. He's Lord over sin. He's over, Lord over death. So what does this mean for the church then? So follow this. And the words that have been asked for years across this church, by lawn, so what? So here's what this means. So two things for us as a church. Don't miss it. One, what does this mean for us as a church? This means we submit our lives to his authority overall. We submit our lives to Jesus' authority over all. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Jesus has it all, which means, follow this, he's not just Lord over nature, nations, disease, demons, sin, and death. If Jesus is Lord over all, then that means he's Lord over you. And he's Lord over me. You know, sometimes I'll hear people say they've decided to make Jesus Lord of their life. I think I know what they're trying to say. But whenever I hear that, I, I just can't help but to think, you didn't really have a choice in the matter. And nobody decides to make Jesus Lord. Jesus is Lord regardless of what anyone decides. Regardless of what, regardless of what you decide, Jesus has died on the cross he has risen from the grave and he is exalted as Lord. This is Philippians 2, 9 through 11. God has exalted him to the highest place and given him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. That pretty much covers it. Every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So every knee one day is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess Jesus is Lord. That is a guarantee. The most wicked person who despises Jesus will one day bow and call Jesus Lord. The most cruel communistic dictator who outlaws faith in Jesus will one day bow and call Jesus Lord. Every world leader from Kim Jong-un in North Korea to Modi in India to President Netanyahu in Israel to President Trump in the United States, every one of them will one day bow and call Jesus Lord. And so will every one of us in this room. So the question is not whether or not you will make Jesus Lord. The question for every one of us in this room is will you bow the knee and call him Lord now or will you bow the knee and call him Lord when it is too late? When you think about it, this is the essence of what it means to be a Christian. So I regret the way that term is used culturally here and around the world to refer to all kinds of people. Christian. And for that, that matter, Protestant, evangelical, any number of other labels that are often used as more of social or cultural, even political identifiers than anything else. You've got to cut through all that. Like biblically, what does it mean to be a follower of Christ? According to Christ, what does it mean to be a Christian? And according to him, it means you submit your life to his absolute authority over your life. 
This is what it means to be a Christian. So for those of you who are exploring Christianity, here's the essence right here. Pay attention real close. We, we have all sinned against a holy God. You don't have to look far in the world. You don't have to look far in our own hearts to know that all is not right. We have turned aside from God's ways to our own ways. And we are all guilty of sin before a holy God. And no matter how much good we try to do, we cannot overcome or erase our guilt. But the good news is God has done it for us. God so loves sinners like you and me that he sent his son, Jesus, God in the flesh, to live the life none of us could live, a life of no sin. And then though he had no sin for which to die, he chose to die as a substitute for us. He paid the penalty for our sins. And then he didn't stay dead long. Three days later, he rose from the grave. Jesus is not dead. Jesus is alive. And the Bible says, Romans chapter 10, verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So there's the summary. But notice what that verse, Romans 10, 9, did not say. It did not say, if you believe in your head, that Jesus died and rose from the dead. And there's a lot of people who believe in Jesus like that and they're not Christians. It may sound like a bold statement, but I know that because the devil himself believes that about Jesus. That Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. The devil believes that. And he's not a Christian. Yet I fear that multitudes of attenders and members of churches today have only that level of belief in Jesus and they're not Christians. They believe in their heads Jesus died on the cross, rose from the grave, enough to pay him homage with somewhat regular church attendance but their lives look just like the rest of the world, loving all the same things the world loves, living for all the same things the world lives for. That's not what it means to be a Christian, not according to Christ. Jesus said, Jesus said, Luke 9, 23, if anyone would come after me, anybody, let him deny himself and take up his cross, die to himself daily and follow me. Jesus says, to follow me as Savior of your life is to follow me as Lord over your life, as the one who has all authority in your life. So to be a Christian, a follower of Christ, means that you submit your life to his lordship. Your plans for your life are submitted to him. Your possessions belong to him. He is Lord over your time. He is Lord over your money. He determines how you spend your money, not you. He determines how you spend your time, not you. He is Lord over your relationships. He is Lord over who you date, who you marry, how you act in marriage, how you parent. He is Lord over your life at home. He is Lord over your life at work. He's Lord over your life at play, your recreation. 
He's Lord over your thoughts. He's Lord over your desires. He's Lord over your decisions and your conversations, your budget and your ambitions. Now, these are things we don't talk about in consumer Christianity. No, we dilute what it means to follow Christ in order to draw as many people as possible into the church. We say, practically, become a Christian and you can keep your life as you know it when it's not true. When you become a Christian, you lose your life as you knew it. And you find entirely new life in Him. Your dreams change. Your desires change. When Jesus is Lord over your heart, you begin to want what he wants. When Jesus is Lord over your relationships, you begin to love like he loves. When Jesus is Lord over your money, it looks very different in the world. You begin to give like he gives. When Jesus is Lord over your life, you begin to live like he lives. This is Paul in Galatians 2, 20. I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. It's not my life. It's his life. Now, all that may sound crazy, radical, you might even say, but it's just normal Christianity when you look at the Bible. You might even think, well, that sounds like a lot of sacrifice I don't know if I can make. And it would be sacrifice if, if you were letting go of that which fulfills in order to hold on to that which is empty. Now, that would be a sacrifice. But that is not the case. Because when you let go of the things of this world to follow Christ, you're not letting go of that which fulfills for that which is empty. Quite the opposite. How many possessions and pleasures and pursuits and people and comforts do we have to run after in this world until we realize none of them, even the best of them, can fully satisfy us? The things of this world will always leave us longing for more. But Jesus is different. Jesus has died on the cross, has risen from the grave so that you and I can come to him as Lord, be reconciled to God, to God, to love that will never, ever let us down, to peace that passes all understanding and transcends all circumstances, to comfort that sustains in the severest of suffering, to hope that endures in the most difficult and darkest of days. When you realize what you're letting go of and who you're holding on to, you realize this is not sacrifice. This is just smart. And the, the, the not smart way to live is to think, oh, I just want to hold on to all this stuff. Uh, that's, that's dumb. <laughs> right? I mean, just think, think of this way. I love Matthew 13, 44. Listen to this little verse. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sell all, sells all that he has and buys that field. I love that verse. I just picture this dude walking through a field and he stumbles upon some treasure that he realizes, he starts looking at, it's worth more than everything else he has put together. Nobody else knows it's there. So he covers it up and he goes back and he starts to sell everything he has. And I can imagine people coming up to him saying, what are you doing? You're crazy. Selling everything. Same thing they would say to you. This world would say to you if you started changing the way you view possessions. You're crazy. What are you doing? Why are you giving away all this stuff? Why are you sacrificing? What? And and he says, I'm going to buy that field over there. And people said to him, you're nuts. Why are you going to buy that field? He's smiling. He's doing this with a smile and his joy. He's smiling. They're like, you've lost it. 
He's smiling. He looks back at them. He says, he smiles. He says, well, I've got a hunch. He smiles. Why? Because inside he knows he has found something that's worth losing everything for. Ladies and gentlemen, Jesus is someone who is worth losing everything for. He is this good. He's this good. Like it just makes sense. This is smart. We don't submit to Jesus' authority because we have to. We submit to Jesus' authority because we want to, because we know that he's better. He's better. He's so much better. And he knows so much better than we do what is best for our lives. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means to be a Christian, to gladly submit to Jesus' authority over your life. That's what it means to be a Christian. So have you done that? Have you done that? I urge you, if you're a tender member of this church for however many years, have you submitted to the Lordship of Christ in your life? Have you, you said, I follow you as my Lord. Not just believe in my head, you just died on the road to the dead. No, I confess you're Lord and believe in my heart that you are risen from the dead. I invite you, trust him, submit to him as Lord. And then, so this is, this is, totally affects the way we think about the church then. This is who we are as a church. We are a people who have submitted our lives to his authority over all we are, all we have. So we're not just a group of people who believe about Jesus in our heads, give lip service to him on a weekly basis. Like we could be a crowd, 10,000 strong of people like that and not have Christ. So that's, no, we're a people who submit our lives to his authority. And then that leads to the second reality. Because we submit our lives to his authority over all, then we give our lives for his glory above all. That's what this means for the church. We're a people who know that Jesus is Lord over all. We know Jesus is Lord over nature, nations, disease, demons, sin, and death. He's Lord over every one of our lives. And we know Jesus has authority to give people eternal life. So what do we do? We give our lives so that others might know his life. That's, that's what we do, right? Like we give our lives so that others might see him, so that other people might call him Lord, experience his love. This drives everything we do in our lives and our families, and then it drives everything we do as the church together. You, you think about Think about what we've talked about the last couple of weeks. Why do we want to pursue multi-ethnic community? to work against racialization. Obviously, we want to do that for a host of reasons that we believe are good for us and, and ultimately because we know that Jesus isn't just Lord over this color people or that color people. Jesus is Lord over all people of all colors and we want Jesus to be glorified by a diversity of people enjoying him. That's why we work in that way. Why do we, why do we pray and work against abortion? Obviously, we do that for children and for women and men, just like we talked about last week. And, and because we want God to be glorified as he deserves to be glorified as the authoritative, wonderful, loving creator of life. We want people to know God as the one who crafted and knit and knew them from the womb. Why do we do everything we do as a church? Just put why on the front of it all. Why, why do we pray? Jesus taught us to pray. Hallowed be your name. We pray for the glory of God's name. Why do we gather together every Sunday like this for worship? Because we want to sing and shout and declare God's glory all over Washington. Why, why do we scatter every week from this building into our homes and neighborhoods and workplaces? Because we don't, we don't want to just see his glory in this building. We want to spread his glory all around the city. Why do we not stop there? Why do we talk about send one another on mission around the world? Because we want the glory of our God, the greatness of our God, the grace of our God to be known all over the planet. 
Why do, why do we give? Why do we treat possessions differently? Because our possessions are God's to be used for his purposes in a world of urgent spiritual physical need around us. Why do we start microsites and launch sites? Because we want more people to hear God's word, experience God's worship. I could go on and on and on. As the church, we are a people who have submitted our lives to God's authority overall. So that means everything that we have is for his glory above all. And this is why, so this is why when somebody asks, what's the vision of McLean Bible Church? I pray that the answer, the words that will spring to our lips and our hearts will be, we glorify God. That's where, that's where our vision is on him. We're, we're fixated on him. We gazing upon him. We see him in all of his glory. We want him. We want to know him. We want to glorify him. We want to love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We want to exalt him in our lives. We want to see him exalted all over Washington and all around the world. That's why each of us exists, and that is why McLean Bible Church exists. Thank you for joining us today on Radical with David Platt. Before we close out today's episode, I want to remind you about the upcoming Secret Church 18. That's this April. It's fast approaching and thousands of small groups and churches have already registered to join us both in person as well as online via simulcast. And if you register by tonight, it's Monday, January 29th by midnight central time. It's only $8 per person. And that's just to cover the cost of the rather robust study guide that we will mail to you. So let me urge you to go to secretchurch.org to learn more and get signed up because you don't want to miss this important night. That's secretchurch.org. Well, I'm your host, Thomas Bowen. And until next time, join us over at Radical.net.